but we have this treasure and jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carried around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe in therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us our eternal glory that far outweighs for more. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Michelle. Uh, very good day to you all. Uh, hello to those of you who are joining us on our live stream if you haven't met me before, my name's Alex. A particular warm welcome if you're new here today. We're so pleased you've come to join us. Uh, before we start, a reminder that all the way through this series, we've been running question and answer Q&A sessions. Uh, this series brings up lots of questions and we want to talk about them, so we continue to invite you to send your questions to us on this email, info at St Andrews. And on Thursday, we release a video where we've been talking about some of your questions, and we put that on the church streaming or uh, YouTube channels. Can I pray for us as we begin our time together? Lord God, we do thank you for your word, the scriptures. You have caused them to be written for our understanding. 
And as we come before your word again, we ask that we might read, mark, learn, inwardly digest the truth of your word. And so holding fast to the everlasting hope that is given to us in Jesus, our Saviour. Help us to walk with Jesus more closely, we pray. Amen. I think one of the more unusual apps that you can get on your devices is something called We Croak. Um, its sole function is to communicate a single message. And the message is this, uh, don't forget, you're going to die. <laughs> it's quite a depressing uh, message. Uh, we Croak explains that uh, in the country of Bhutan, uh, they have a saying that contemplating death five times a day actually leads to happiness. And so five times a day, you get a message sent to your phone at random intervals with this little frog that croaks and appears and you get that same reminder every day, five times a day, don't forget, you're going to die. Uh, now, even though these reminders aren't intended to um, produce despair in you, I can't help but think that that's what they do. It can't help but get you down a little bit. I mean, think about it. Um, you're having a nice romantic meal with your spouse and your phone buzzes and you look at it and it says, don't forget you're going to die. Or you're taking your kids to Ocean Park and you're about to get on a roller coaster and you look at your phone, don't forget you're going to die. Or it's the time for your annual performance review with your boss and you're super nervous about it and just before the meeting, you look at your, don't forget you're going to die. Now, if it was me, I haven't downloaded this app, I'm not advertising it, there's no commission here, but if it was me, <laughs> I'd probably delete it before long, because who wants to think about death all the time, five times a day, it's a bit depressing. But here's the thing, Christians have the most resources to be optimistic about death, we have the most reason not to fear death. The Apostle Paul says to the Romans, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. If Jesus has risen from the dead, you trust in Him, Jesus' Spirit lives in you, then you too will be raised from the dead. That's the promise of Scripture. Therefore, Christians have the most resources to, to face death confidently and purposefully because even though we know that our earthly bodies, the bodies we have now, are wearing away, there is a future for our bodies. Now, we're in a series called The Body, a guide for occupants, and we've been looking at how the Bible answers all those big questions about our body, and today is the last in our series. We're thinking about the future of our bodies, because I can say, I think without fear of contradiction, that we will all face death. That is in our future. But if you're a Christian, your future also includes resurrection. And this future profoundly affects our present. Where Christians look at affects how Christians live in the present. Now, we just read, we're a little bit early, uh, we just read one of the most hope-filled passages in all of Scripture. Uh, Paul is writing to the Corinthians He's had a difficult relationship with the Corinthians. Uh, they're, they're questioning Paul's authority, his credentials, and, and they're saying things like, you know, you can't really trust Paul. 
because Paul goes through a lot of trouble. God can't really be with him because look at all the things that he's gone through and their reasoning is this, if God is with you, you should have the good life. And so they're probably thinking, Paul, how can you be beaten up and imprisoned and shipwrecked all these times? It must mean that God is is not with you. But Paul's response is fascinating. It's fascinating not just because of what he says about the nature of gospel ministry itself, it's fascinating because of what he says about our bodies now in this broken world and what he says about our bodies in the future, in the world to come. And so as we think about this passage, we'll, we'll look at three things, our bodies now, our bodies then, and therefore. What, what, what difference does this all make to us? So we have our bodies now. Paul gives two metaphors for our bodies now. We begin at verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. He compares our bodies to jars of clay. Now, jars of clay are made new for a purpose. They're useful, but it doesn't take long for them to start wearing away. They start useful, but they don't end that way. There's something fragile about them. They get chipped and cracked. They break, they wear down. Paul also says in in chapter 5, for we know that this earthly tent that we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God. In other words, he compares us to earthly tents. Now, I, I love camping, I love the outdoors, but... I don't think it's any exaggeration to say sleeping in a tent is less comfortable than sleeping at home. That's probably why a lot of you don't like camping. You're sceptical about any accommodation that you can carry on your back. Your idea of a holiday is air conditioning and TV and streaming and, and, and comfortable beds. It's, it's not camping because camping is a downgrade. It's not an upgrade. It's less comfortable. Paul knows a lot about tents because Paul spent a lot of time making tents to support his ministry. He knows tents have limitations. That's why he compares us and our bodies to tents. Tents are temporary. They tear, they wear down, they're they're vulnerable. Tents aren't secure. Of course, most of the time we try to take care of our earthly tents. We try as hard as possible to make these earthly tents look good. Um... I do, I do a lot of weddings and I'm always astounded by the difference in the couple from the Thursday wedding rehearsal to the Saturday wedding. Uh, because at the Thursday wedding rehearsal, they look kind of normal, but the Saturday wedding, they're, they're transformed, almost unrecognisable. <laughs> and I don't say this to them, but I often think it, this is about as good as it gets for you. <laughs> from here, it's all downhill. You'll never look this good. Um, we know something of what it's like to live in these earthly tents. We, we know it's difficult. Paul says later on, we groan, we're burdened. Living in these earthly tents is tough. And a lot of us are acutely aware of that groaning. We're all too familiar with it. You know what it's like to experience chronic pain with no real prospect of recovery. I have a good friend who's had constant migraines for many years without any effective treatment. Some of us know what it's like to live with disability, to feel as though you're a prisoner in your own body. 
But the thing is, most of us expect to live a long life with very few health problems, if any. And when health problems do come along, we're we're sideswiped by them. They take us by surprise. Suffering takes modern people by surprise. The author and theologian Tim Keller says this, the end result is that today we are more shocked and undone by suffering than were our ancestors. Life for our ancestors was filled with far more suffering than ours is, and yet we have innumerable diaries, journals and historical documents that reveal how they took that hardship and grief in far better stride than we do. So how does Paul explain the suffering that he's been through? I mean, how does he respond to those people who say, Paul, you know, because you're suffering, God can't be with you. Well, he doesn't just say, God is with me in spite of these sufferings. He goes even further and says, these sufferings are confirmation of the gospel. And so from verse 10, he says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul's saying, this is how the gospel works. Death is followed by resurrection. Weakness followed by exaltation. We see that in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, who was weak, humiliated, crucified, but then resurrected. We see this weakness turning to strength in every gospel ministry. Paul uses this metaphor of death, saying, my life and ministry looks like death. My life is full of suffering, but Jesus' death is working in me so that through the gospel, others might receive life. That's what God does. He brings difficulties and weaknesses in our lives so that we might learn to hold more strongly to Him, so that in our weakness, we might recognize that the power doesn't come from us, it comes from God. That's why Paul said earlier, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. That's what Paul learnt, that in our weakness, we are most strong in the Lord's. What about you? You know, because God is going to bring into your life difficult experiences, to remind you that you're vulnerable, you're wearing away, you are not in control of your life, your bodies will decay and break. How, how do you deal with all of that? Uh, Many years ago, I heard this illustration that really had an an, an impact on me. The illustration was about a lumberjack who went into a grove of trees and he was going to cut down all those trees. And he saw a bird building a nest in one of those trees and and, and he was suddenly aware that that bird, its eggs, its hatchlings that may come are all going to die because that tree is going to come down. And so he went over to that tree and with the back of his axe, he banged on that tree and he shook the tree and the bird is shaking and, and, and it's suffering and the bird's probably thinking, what are you doing? Why are you tormenting me? And so the bird, after a little while of shaking, flew off and, 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 and built a nest in another tree. But then the lumberjack saw the bird in that tree and went over to that tree and again banged the tree and shook the tree and shook the bird and, and the bird is again probably thinking, why are you, why are you doing this? Why are you stalking me? Why, why are you causing me to suffer? And again, the bird 
flew from that tree, went to another tree, built a nest in that tree. And again, the lumberjack went to that tree and shook the tree and banged the tree and shook the bird until finally the bird flew from that tree and went to a nearby rock face and built her nest in a rock there. And and the preacher said, every tree in this world is coming down. Every institution, every family, every loved one, every career, everything. And the only place that you're going to find your rest and your refuge is in the rock. And that rock is God. You know, not all of God's gifts are pleasant. Some of God's gifts come in in difficult wrapping to teach us and remind us that we are vulnerable. We are finite and mortal. We are here one moment, gone the next. Therefore, we need to find our refuge, our security in God, the rock. Paul talks about our bodies now, but he also talks about our bodies then, our resurrection bodies, our future bodies. Chapter 1, sorry, chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Uh, Paul builds a contrast for us, a, a contrast between our inevitable death compared to the life to come that God has promised for us. Whereas life now is vulnerable and temporary, God has promised a building a house not made by human hands, an eternal house in heaven waiting for us. We will go from a tent to a building, from broken, imperfect bodies to perfected, resurrected future bodies, a life of groaning and burden now to a life of fullness, of joy beyond all our comprehension. But the question is, how can Paul be so confident about this, so confident in the promises of God for a future body, Well, it's all because of the resurrection of Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And last of all, He appeared to me also. What's Paul saying? Jesus died physically, he was buried physically, he rose physically, his resurrected body was a physical body and his resurrection was not a hidden event, it was there for all to see. His disciples and followers saw him, they touched him and hugged him and ate with him and they were so convinced that he rose bodily from the dead that they told everyone around them about this even when it cost them their lives. And Jesus' resurrection points to other resurrections to come. His resurrection was not an isolated event. His resurrection is the first of the resurrections of all who would follow Him. So, what can we therefore say about our future bodies? I mean, what will our future bodies be like? Well, we can say something. The best way I think of thinking about this is to look at uh, the risen Jesus. We will be raised with the kind of body that Jesus was raised with. Paul says further in 1 Corinthians, 
And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. Just as our current bodies correspond to Adam's, our bodies are marked with sin and brokenness, so our heavenly bodies, our future bodies to come, will correspond with Jesus's, full of life and joy and fullness. That means that we can expect some continuities and differences between our present and our future states. That, that was evidence, for instance, in Jesus' resurrection body. When He was raised, He was recognisably Jesus. People recognised Him for who He is. But they saw as well that the scars, that the scars, the marks of crucifixion in His hands and in His body. But then also, He was different. He was able to pass through walls and, and, and doors. And similarly, we will be like ourselves, recognisably so. But we'll also possess some qualities that we currently lack. The most obvious one being, our bodies will no longer wear out. We'll no longer age. We'll no longer be susceptible to, to sickness and pain. Our bodies will not decay. Um, I mean, just looking at you in terms of, a lot of you, this life... Like me, you're past your prime, right? I mean, me, I've given up hope in believing I'll ever play for Australian rugby. That's done. But because of the promise of the resurrection, our best physical days are not behind us. They're ahead of us. We'll all have resurrection bodies. And you might be tempted to think that your resurrection bodies, your future bodies will be great because you finally have the body that you've always wanted. You know, flat stomachs, beautiful hair, no blemishes or imperfections or anything like that. But the real glory is not that our bodies will correspond to our culture's understanding of beauty. No, the real glory is our bodies will correspond to Jesus perfectly. There'll be no more physical or spiritual weakness. No more giving in to temptation. No more shame or affliction. No more sin. No more half-hearted holiness or selective obedience. No, instead, for the first time in our existence, we'll be able to worship Jesus perfectly. Listen, if you're new here today and you've come and you're investigating Christianity and you're just trying to figure out who God is and who Jesus is, then can you see that the gospel is good news for your body? All religions talk about death and the afterlife. But all of them generally speak about how you've got to live a good life if you're going to enter into that afterlife. And yet, as death approaches for us, we know, we know deep down that we haven't lived as we ought. We haven't even come close to it. And so quite understandably, we're still enslaved by the fear of death until the very end. But Christianity is different. You are not left on your own just to hold up a record, your resume or CV of your own spiritual goodness or morality, hoping that that is enough. You are not left on your own. Instead, Christianity speaks of a Saviour who has conquered death, who pardons you and covers you, embraces you with His love. And once you come to believe in Jesus, 
You are united with him. And death does not break your union with him. This union with Jesus is more basic than even life itself. That means even though each of us will face death, you can say, I know someone who has gone to the grave and come out. I know someone who has defeated death and come back. Therefore, death will not be the final word on me. Paul talks about our bodies now, our bodies in the future. And therefore, what difference should this make to us? What difference does this make at all? Well, two things. First of all, we don't lose heart. Verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Again, Paul is giving us a contrast between two lives. Our lives now, our lives then. Right now, we do often lose heart because outwardly our bodies are are wearing away. You know, just even Friday, I went to the gym as I normally do. I try to run, run for a while. After 20 minutes, ankles started hurting. Old rugby injury, I couldn't run anymore. Went to another machine to try to finish my time. Knee started hurting straight away. Your bodies are wearing away. And Paul says, whatever difficulties that we experience in these lives, as trivial as sore ankles and knees, are light and momentary. They're light and momentary troubles compared to what is to come, compared to the eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That means what to come, what will be given to you, won't just compensate you for all your troubles, it will overwhelm, engulf everything that you've experienced before. That will make your current troubles, even the worst experiences that you can go through, seem like nothing. Look, there might be times when the evil and suffering of this world feels like it kicks you in the guts and keeps kicking you while you're down. There's this part in Dostoevsky's novel, famous novel, The Brothers Karamazov, where Ivan, the, the, the middle of three brothers, is giving this huge list about the appalling suffering that is sometimes inflicted upon innocent children. You know, torture and abuse and murder and so on. And, and he famously remarks that no amount of eternal redemption could possibly make up for the screams of just one innocent child. For Ivan, the problem is not so much the why of suffering, it's the existence. There is no answer that could ever justify the existence of suffering. And yet Ivan also takes on another perspective. He explores another perspective which deals with this problem, this this perspective of humility. It's acknowledging that even though we can't imagine a world where suffering is made up for, that doesn't mean that such a world doesn't exist. It just means that our minds are limited. We we might not be able to imagine it. In fact, holding together the idea that all things will one day be renewed and that that, that a way will be atoned for, uh, in a way that atones for everything else, even the worst imaginable things to happen. All of that is what's at the centre of the Christian hope. 
And so Ivan describes it beautifully in this famous passage. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass, that it will suffice for all fears, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. In other words, the suffering that we experience now doesn't make sense. It's not supposed to. But there will be a time through the love and power of God where it will make sense to you. And the gospel gives us resources now so that we do not lose heart, regardless of whatever we experience. It helps Paul to navigate what he's going through. As he describes elsewhere, he says this, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. As Christians, we look to what's to come. Because where we look as Christians affects how we live as Christians in the present. So we don't lose heart, but then secondly... We make it our goal to please Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 9. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in this body or away from it. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Paul fixes our eyes on a day where each one of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And if you trust in Jesus, if His Spirit is in you, the outcome of that day is not in doubt because Jesus has saved you. You are saved by Him alone, entirely through Him alone. But Paul says we haven't been saved for a life of aimlessness and indifference, just casually going about our own agenda and forgetting about what Jesus has done. We've been saved to live for the Lord. And there will be a day to come where Jesus will give a verdict on every single one of us according to how we've lived our lives in response to Him. Now, it's one thing to believe in Jesus. It's another thing to be prepared to meet Jesus face to face. Think of Steve. Um, Steve is a, is a good guy. Um, he lives a good life. Uh, he's got a good job, good wife. He's a really good guy to hang around with. And Steve is also a Christian. He comes to church uh, each week. He believes that the Bible tells us, gives us the most plausible purpose for life, who we are and why we are the way we are. But while Steve believes in God, the reality is, is that his ambitions and hopes, his, 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 his aspirations are all about this life. How he makes his decisions and plans and, and conducts himself are like this life is all there is. He believes that tomorrow will be just like today. He believes for certainty that he will wake up in his bed tomorrow morning. Now, it's not that Steve doesn't believe in heaven. He does believe in heaven. It's just that he doesn't think about it too much. He doesn't think and let heaven shape his aspirations and ambitions in the now. Steve's hopes are very much orientated around this life. And you know, if we're honest with ourselves, 
we're always like Steve. Very often we can be like Steve. We can start off believing in this life as well as the next, but then we start ignoring the next, forgetting the next, disbelieving in the next. Paul says there'll be a day to come when all of us will see Jesus face to face. And therefore, until that day comes, we should live with our goal to please Him. Because regardless, we'll all live our lives to please somebody. We're always trying to please somebody, whether it's your spouse or your family, your parents, your boss, your, your, your colleagues, the, the, the professional industry that you're in. We're always trying to leave, please somebody. We're always looking for that verdict, that favourable approval, that, 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 that good judgement. That's what makes us so often susceptible to criticism. Paul says, live to please Jesus above anybody else. There's a part in C.S. Lewis, Lewis's sermon called The Weight of Glory, where he says this, it's written that we shall stand before Him. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. What a thought that we, us, can please God, that we can be responsible for divine happiness, His joy, His pleasure, that He can delight in us as He sees our, our actions, as He, as He interrogates our thoughts and motives, as He watches us deal with the joys and difficulties of this life that we can bring Him pleasure and joy and delight. Isn't that worth more than anything that you can have in this life? To receive the praise of the most praiseworthy. Why would you live your lives fixated and obsessed about winning the approval of others who are just fading away when we are guaranteed the approval of the One who has given everything for us? And so we fix our eyes on, on what is to come. Where we look as Christians very much affects how we live as Christians in the present. So we give our lives to Jesus because He has given everything for us. And we look forward to that day when we see Him face to face and He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we, we want to pause and recognize that we have this treasure, this gospel, this hope in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power comes from you, not from us. Uh, we want to recognize that we live in broken and frail bodies as much as we spend a lot of our lives ignoring this or living in denial about this, uh, we'll all be confronted one day with death. But praise be to our Saviour Jesus Christ, the one who has died for us and conquered death, that death will not be the final word on us, that instead we will rise 
and meet with Jesus and see Him face to face and we'll be done with sin, done with our brokenness, done with our selective obedience and half-hearted holiness. But until that day comes, Lord, help us not to lose heart. We know that our days have a span that only you are aware of. Help us during our days not to lose heart with the wearing away of our bodies, but help us to have joy and delight and contentment with you and help us to make it our goal to live to please Jesus. For we're all going to have to give an account of how we've lived our lives. Help us not to get to that day of judgment with regrets, thinking that I could have done more. Help us not to have a vision of Jesus, seeing him face to face with his nail-pierced hands and sides and, and, and think, Jesus, if only I could have done more for you. If only I could have done more. Lord, would you guide us by your Spirit so that we would walk in faith and not by sight and live our lives for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.